0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. I'm your host today, Valentino Stoll, and I'm joined by co-host Dave Kumera How's it going? And we're here to talk about uh, all of the new, latest and greatest things uh, in Rails related to deployment. Uh, and if, if you haven't been looking at what's been coming out, it's what we're talking about is Docker and a Rails centric way to deploy apps with it. Uh, Dave, I'll admit I have very limited knowledge of this. So Dave, do you want to give us like a quick rundown of what it is and how people are using it?
1: Yeah, so MERSC is a deployment utility that leverages Docker very heavily. And it takes, in my opinion, a lot of great practices or best practices. As far as how you deploy, so it'll, the thousand foot view is it'll first create a local Docker image of your application, it'll push it up to a registry. And then when it actually goes to deploy it, it uses traffic in between the actual application on that virtual machine or bare metal server. And instead of just porting all the traffic directly to the Rails application running, it all goes through traffic, which is a load balancer. And when you are deploying your application, it's going to first spin up another container on that machine, make sure that the application is up and running, passing health checks, and then it'll replace the old virtual machine with the new one, traffic updating to then point all the traffic to the new one. So it's a deployment mechanism, very similar to Capistrano. But instead of having to deal with bare metal servers and that kind of stuff, it's all pretty much Dockerized. So you can do this with any kind of environment that you would deploy to a with Capistrano. But what you cannot do with it is currently leverage stuff like Docker Swarm, Kubernetes, or any kind of environment where... The actual underlying virtual machine can go away at any given point in time, and then new ones get provisioned. So things like App Runner or Beanstalk would be out of the question
0: too. That's really interesting in that it went that direction, <laughs> and I, I'm a little disappointed, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> that it uh, you know isn't a little more inclusive to what all of the current providers are, and I. You know, I understand that there's like, you know, a heavy uh, move off the cloud movement starting um, Mm -hmm. that I don't know necessarily I agree with, but it seems like, and and maybe we can dig into more of whether or not this is even true, uh, but my first impression is that it's just like, has cut out a large chunk of how people are currently deploying. Is that not the case?
1: If people have adopted Kubernetes and that kind of stuff, then yes, that is the case. But I guess the question is, why are you using Kubernetes in the first place if you have a simple enough monolithic application that has few dependencies? You have maybe some kind of storage API like S3. You have a database, Redis, maybe a full-text search engine if you've outgrown what PostgreSQL or something like that, has. So, if you have a simple monolithic application, why are you even using Kubernetes? Like, what is Kubernetes really bringing to the equation that is like, I'm so glad I have this orchestrator that I now have to maintain and troubleshoot and deal with?
0: I mean, the first thing I think of is scaling. <laughs> uh, you know, Kubernetes definitely makes it easier, I think, to scale up and down those services. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe if you only have a a handful of them, or you know, probably three is the magic number, right? <laughs> you have your web uh, background and maybe something else. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. So I guess why why not Capistrano? <laughs> well, what? How does this differentiate? Maybe we should start there. Like, how does this differentiate from Capistrano, which uh, you know? It's just a configuration tool that lets you use SSH to magically you know deploy your Rails application to the to the right passenger stack or however you want to configure that. Where do these start diverging?
1: So I think Capistrano, the biggest difference between the two is that Capistrano is going to do everything on the underlying host machine that it's getting deployed to, whether that's a bare metal server or a virtual machine it's not using Docker in any fashion. So when that happens, is Capistrano going to easily or by default be able to spin up a separate running instance of the application, do health checks, and then replace the old running instance? Or is it going to be a lot more complicated to get that kind of functionality? So basically, you have zero downtime deployments
0: with Maersk versus Capistrano. I see. So I mean... It sounds good. <laughs> I do like that it's kind of zero dependency or one single dependency, right? It, you need Docker to run it. Um, so I mean, that aspect of it, I do like, uh, how, how is the experience like? Like, where do you even get started? What, like, what, how much effort is it to like st- start fresh, convert to? Have you had an experience with this? Yeah,
1: so I have recorded a couple of Drift and Ruby episodes on the topic specifically. And one of them is a free episode that you can go and watch today. And I'm I'm pretty impressed with it. At first, it was a bit, you know, like there's too much magic going on in the background, and that's always worrisome. But as you start digging through the logs and actually reading what Mersk is doing. It makes a lot more sense, and it's a lot less magic than you would think. The biggest magic piece is that you are compiling your application, or not not compiling, you're building your application image, which is a Docker image. That gets pushed up to the registry, and then your production environment pulls it down. And the nice thing about this is that I was able to destroy all of the Example environments that I had running in preparations for the episode because I wanted to make sure that the steps I'm doing are correct and have a nice presentation to show. And I was able to rerun the MERS deployment, initializing the servers and everything without having to change anything but the IP addresses that they were pointed to. And it was able to recreate basically everything. And so I think it is very powerful because. If you have a bare metal server or if you are using virtual machines up in the cloud, so if you're using DigitalOcean Droplets, EC2 instances, then you're still able to be on the cloud using MERS. But the idea is, you don't even need to SSH into that virtual machine to get everything up and running. As long as MERS on the environment that you're running it on, whether it is a CICD pipeline, your actual computer or something like that, then it's going to provision that machine entirely. So it's going to install Docker, get that up and running. It's going to install the Traffic Load Balancer, which is just a Docker container, and deploy your application image. So you don't need to have an extensive amount of DevOps knowledge, Linux knowledge in order to get up and running with Merce. And I say that with a huge asterisk that we'll talk about
0: all right so, yeah i was gonna I was gonna say uh I mean how does how do you even start to think about security in this way um
1: and there's the asterisk <laughs> uh where
0: like <laughs> so I have so many questions like where how does like the bootstrapping process work for MERS? like if you just have a bare metal server, like let's stick with like uh you know, a digital ocean droplet or something like that, right? Uh, and you just provision an Ubuntu box or something, right? Uh, that's just blank. Is that the process? Yeah. And mm-hmm. then you, what?
1: When you, uh, in the MERS <laughs> configuration, there's a deployment YAML file that you basically give it the IP address, the public-facing IP address, or if it's all happening within a local network, the non-routable local IP, you would give it that in the deployment YAML file. And it's an array, so you get multiple servers that you'd be deploying to. And then it would SSH into there, run and install Docker if it's not already installed, and then get the traffic load balancer and deploy the application. So there's very little that it actually does for us. Uh, outside of the deployment. It doesn't do any server hardening. So if you do have an application, or if you created a droplet, and that droplet is just exposed to the world, and from there, you just deploy your application and never think about it again, well, you are leaving open a lot of security holes, potentially. So in the episode, I do go through and talk about some of the minimum things that I would do on those kind of environments. One being um, installing and enabling UFW if you're on Ubuntu, which is a firewall program. So you can basically block all traffic and only allow certain traffic in through the network. So you would only allow traffic on port 80, which is what traffic listens on and you would only allow traffic on maybe your ssh port you want to make sure that you are not doing password authentication on ssh that you are using some kind of rsa token so you're you know you're not going to be able to brute force that really and just a few other things like running the security updates on the
0: underlying os and stuff i see so it's it's not exactly turnkey
1: <laughs> no no um And I think that this is where maybe DHH has never had this need because when you're deploying to a cloud virtual machine versus having your own hardware within your own data center or local network, there is an inherent different level of surface exposure for attack. Because if you're on your own network, you already most likely have a firewall in place. And the world's not going to be able to access those machines. You would have to open up a pinhole or a port forwarding or NAT translation from the world at your firewall to that machine to then expose port 80 or whatever. So I do think that there is some things that are needed within MERSC to really make this a full-fledged deployment utility or mechanism. But at the same time, I think it's also worth noting that if you were to go the Kubernetes route, is that really any different as far as, you know, the initial provisioning and server-hardening? Because you, again, are creating EC2 instances, and those EC2 instances need some kind of access. And so are those out-of-the-box secure, or is it a very similar problem?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the difference there is there's tooling already set up to make those things easier to do, right? Like, there are probably, I I haven't experienced Kubernetes enough, but, you know, there's the AWS command line, uh, there's, you know, Kubernetes has its own kube control that, you know, lets you co- make your own configurations and set up. So you could do, automate a lot of that lockdown, uh, which I know is just a matter of time for it you know, M- MRSK to get there. Um, but I-, I see those as being advantageous, right? Where, you know, if you're a team that it, using Kubernetes, <laughs> uh, it's still hard to tell kind of what the advantage of using MRSK would be. And maybe that's not the target audience, right? Um,
1: yeah. I think that if you want a more simple in- infrastructure, because I do think that there's a lot of overhead with Kubernetes. You know, if you were to install Kubernetes on a, um, you know, let's say a cluster, so you have three different virtual machines. There's a lot of network traffic talking between the two, and you also have the resources of Kubernetes running on there as well. And you know, it might not be worth it, especially after one year when your certificate expires, and then. It's like you're unable to deploy because you can't, you know, kube control into there to make a deployment because the certificate has expired. You know, how many people have encountered that immediately? Knew, like, oh, I need to go in here, run the, you know, kube control command to then update the local certificates, pull down that profile or that cert on my local machine, rerun the deployment. Now, how many people are going to be able to do that? without having to look up Google, try to do research or refer back to documentation. So I do think that there's a lot of added complexity in things like Kubernetes, which I run Kubernetes at home. So don't get me wrong, I don't hate it. But I don't think it's the end meets all answer to everything, especially for smaller organizations who maybe don't have a full-fledged DevOps and IT team to manage that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. You know, there's a reason why Fly.io and you know Heroku and all these companies were so successful for the Ruby community in that it's hard to deploy an application for Rails or Sinatra or something like that, right? Where it, you know, Rack needs some extra setup and configuration with most like web servers, right, to get it set up and uh, you know taking requests. Um, and so it makes sense that Rails should have its own tooling, right, to make that easier. Um, I when I first saw this, uh, I was almost, I I was hopeful that it was Pow. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you remember Pow, but yep. the, you know, former local, uh, you know, local deployment, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. way to basically just get your application. Served on your local network easier, right? Uh, Through custom domain names, Um, I I was hopeful that that was what this would be, right? Like, I I take this and I execute it, and then suddenly I could just say, okay, I'm going to use my local machine and temporarily have this deployed and accessible.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Puma Dev replaced Pal, in my opinion. Uh, if you've not heard of Puma Dev, it's no, very similar that? to PAL. It's made by the Puma team, I believe, and it allows you to do very much the same stuff. But what you get out of the box with Puma Dev is uh, SSL, but then you also get the support for WebSockets. So if you're doing anything with Action Cable or anything like that, then you get that support out of the box. I've kind of since moved on from Puma Dev. Once I started using Docker, because I don't think they're going to really play well. But one thing that I loved about Puma Dev is if I go to that domain name, whatever it gives me, like you know example dot local, then it'll automatically spin up that application, starting the rail service and stuff. I don't have to do that manually. So that was that was a really nice thing that it had back in the day, but. Right now, my normal development workflow is with Docker and a Docker Compose file. And my production deployment mechanism for a lot of my hobby-ish apps are actually with Docker Swarm. So the reason why I like Docker Swarm is because it uses a Docker Compose file. So I'll have a file that looks very similar to what I'm doing in development and a Docker file that looks very similar to what I'm doing in development. But it just has some of the environment variable changes and that kind of stuff. And I'm able to basically have a as close to production development environment that I'm deploying to production. So that's why I like that setup. And I actually have Rails templates that generates the Docker file and Docker compose files for me whenever I am creating a new app. So. That's my preferred way. But if I did want to branch that out into its own infrastructure, each application, then I think I would definitely go the MERS route because I could just create the virtual machines that I need, not even need to log into them, just grab their IP address, make sure that I can SSH into them and then run the MERS deploy against them. And then the application be up and running in just a few steps.
0: Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Does that let you, like, how easy is it then to just, like, deploy a local, you know, a one-off project? Like, what is that process like? And how, I was reading in MRSK, like, it's not really compatible with that Docker Swarm setup. How do you feel about the differentiation there?
1: And I don't know if I would want it to be, you know, simply because Merce, it takes a few assumptions. It One assumes that you do have some networking and IT experience that you're going to be able to create your own infrastructure. But what it basically doesn't want you to have to worry about is the actual application deployment process. You still have to worry about the other things. Provisioning and hardening a virtual machine, getting your database up and running, being able to handle the networking and the NAT translations, the DNS stuff. You still have to do all of that. So it's not a free, uh, it's not a free DevOps person that, you know, someone like render or fly.io would say. So there is still a bit of knowledge requirement. But I will say it is sure as heck a lot easier than trying to get this all set up and deployed within uh, AWS EC2 instances by yourself. And it's going to be a lot more repeatable. Like I said earlier, I was able to destroy the entire uh, application environment, the virtual machines, get a new load balancer, two new virtual machines, a database server reprovision without even SSHing into those Virtual machines, I was then able to just run my MERS deploy again against those two new IP addresses and it deployed everything and the application was live again. So, those steps are, uh, I do show those fully in the video on being able to set all that up. And it's really not that much. There was a recent article from someone at fly.io that basically ripped into MERS and I think they've since retracted it because the community kind of like backlash at them because they didn't disclose that this they worked for fly.io so but i think that's kind of like the thing where this utility came out and it scared them enough to say like here's why you shouldn't use uh MERS. and i think that kind of gives more legitimacy especially if you then retract the article and enough people saw it, it to me, gives more legitimacy like, wow, yeah, Mersk is something to be afraid of if you're in that deployment space. But what they should have focused on instead of how much steps it took to get Mersk up and running versus Fly.io or you know any of that stuff, it's we're handling all the DevOps for you. You don't have to worry about networking. You don't have to worry about database provisioning. You don't have to worry about server hardening. We take care of all that for you all MERS takes care of for you is application deployment, not server provisioning, networking, hardening, none of that. That's all still up to you.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's an important distinction to make. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of... That's one thing I did like about it is its encapsulation, right? As, a, as an application ecosystem, uh, move it where you want to. Um, it definitely makes a lot of sense. I'm still trying to, <laughs> to to find maybe its advantages over like other, you know, deployment packaging mechanisms like Paquetto or, or something like that that kind of make this, you know, packaging of application deployments easier. Um, where do you kind of see that, you know, where what are some advantages? in using musk over uh you know something like a you know a a build platform um or, or kubernetes i mean in, in a way you know like i i know that they package differently but like what what is advantageous specifically about musk over uh you know packaging up the application deployment process
1: yeah uh before I answer that, I do want to note that they did not retract the article on fly.io. I did link to it uh here on the show notes, but um the Reddit post that was created around it, I think they did remove. So I just want to you know clear the air there. But so it's an interesting article and it's good to know what's out there and stuff. But back to your built uh build question. So Heroku was the original pioneer. And infrastructure as a service. And I think many have tried to recreate what Heroku has offered. And one of the things that they had that's been very successful is the build kite or the build kit. And the build kit is, and keep me honest here, Valentino, because I don't know too much about the build kit, but it basically is the set of instructions for, for most Ruby on Rails applications or these kind of things it's going to check to see if you have yarn installed or the the package json or whatever and then it'll install node and it'll install a lot of these things in a docker image for you so you don't have to worry about it and i think for the most part that kind of stuff works pretty good until something deviates so what if for your particular application you need something like ffmpeg because you're doing some processing or thumbnailing or something with videos, and you need to have that library on there. How easy with Fly.io, with Render, with Heroku, any of these infrastructure as a platform services, are you going to be able to add in these kind of dependencies? And maybe you're able to get it to work on a specific version of a uh, Docker image. But maybe you need to do some GPU acceleration. How the heck's that going to work on Heroku? So I think Maersk is allowing you to make these decisions. It puts in place, especially with Rails 7.1, where we're going to get this production Docker file by default or new applications that's kind of been tailored with best practices and to work with Mersk. So we're going to get all of this out of the box and the ability to make our own decisions and to configure them how we need, when we need it. Instead of trying to figure out the existing toolset deviating from that and trying to get things to work.
0: I was going to say that makes a lot of sense. Um, But to go back to your point of like, build, (laughs) you know, build over basically running, ongoing running, right? Like, which I think is kind of like the crux of why this was created. Is trying to get off of the the cloud process of clone, you know, swap and destroy. <laughs> um, right, which is like kind of that process. Like, how do you get a de- dependency that's not there? Is you spin up a whole new node with all of the existing ones, add it, switch to that new pro you know, <laughs> to that new application, and then once everything is settled, drop the other one. <laughs> yeah. Right which, you know, to me doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but it sol- solves the problem, right? Like, it does, you know, make it easier uh, to do those things. But it is like, why are you wasting all of that effort um, <laughs> when you don't necessarily need to? Um, so I, I will go back to to Maersk, uh in a couple points that I saw as like being like kind of a huge benefit um, and one of the ones that stuck out to me was like rolling back, you know, deploys, mm-hmm. where that kind of just comes out of the box where you can just say, roll back, you know, mersk roll back as a command line, and it will just automatically revert, you know, your application to the previous working state. Um, yeah, and it's pretty
1: interesting the way it does that. So it looks at the Git log. Every git commit is going to have a SHA attached to it. And MERSC will keep the previous few images with those different SHAs. And over time, it's going to then start cleaning up the old ones, which is really great for not having to maintain that server. Because those, I've run into this issue many times where my deployment on a portainer environment using Dr. Swarm, I did so many deployments, that the Docker images just ate up all the available disk space. So, Maersk is taking that into account where it's going to then clean up the old, old ones, but keep the few recent ones that you can do a rollback if you need to.
0: So how does, one of my biggest concerns is kind of like uh, extendability, right? Like, if you have some external service that you're trying to connect and into your MERSC setup, like how easy is that to extend and integrate with?
1: Do you have an example service? Or do you mean just something like S3 or Ah, uh,
0: Sure, I mean, those are good examples Or like, uh, I- I'm trying to think of one where it's not as like popular, right? Like, uh, Let's say you have like, a, I don't know, like a, an email client or something like that, or um, I don't know, like a, a third-party application that has a bunch of dependencies that are separate to it that you want to coexist, right? Like uh, how, how easy is it to like make that symbiotic relationship? Like I, I'm thinking more of like in a, you know, multi-docker setup, uh, you can configure that with a lot of configuration tools to connect the two and make it easier to host everything all in one kind of ecosystem like how hard is that is there like a hard divide with you know mirk versus like uh you know some of the other options that are out there like if i went and i saw you know oh I could set up this uh you know discord bot or whatever it may be um, and it has its own like deployment setup and configuration options, uh, you know, using some of the other deployment tools, it's kind of easy to just say, okay, well, use their setup. Um, here's their, you know, Docker file or whatever it may be, uh, and uh, it'll deploy smoothly as long as you use the Cube Control or you know Docker Swarm or, or things like that that are already set up to, you know, lock in their setup for you.
1: Yeah. It- I really think it's a non-issue. And I say that simply because, let's say if you do have your own infrastructure, whether in a data center, in your office, at your home, uh, or wherever, and you were doing your deployment with MERSC. So it is no different than having your existing infrastructure the way it's at. And then you have these virtual machines. The only layer that you're really adding of complexity here is a Docker layer. So on these virtual machines, instead of deploying the application directly to those virtual machines, which is something like what Capstrano would do, you're deploying Docker and then having Docker run the image. And so if you have an application that, let's say, is taking in requests, so you have some non-standard ports that you're then having your environment take the request in on, then it could get a little bit complicated because then you do need to have those ports open for the Docker environment to listen to. You have to then forward them within the Docker network to the appropriate running container. So I think that's really the only complexity from a bare metal deployment that you have with MERSC. And I think it's a lot less complex than a lot of other deployment mechanisms. And I say that from the perspective of when something goes wrong and things aren't building right or deploying right, you're going to have a lot more to try to figure out.
0: Yeah, so I guess that's my ultimate question is, at what point does Maersk stop making it easier for you to manage the things that you're working on?
1: I think that the illusion of MERS being the one-stop-all deployment and server management utility, I think that's the main problem. Because again, it's not going to do server hardening or any best practices. It only handles the application deployment. And if you are not concerned about all of those other things, then you really should be using a platform as a service tool. Because if you're not going to take care of your servers, because at, at this point, uh, are you familiar with the whole pet versus cattle deal with um servers and being able to reprovision them and all that stuff? No. <laughs> so what is that? <laughs> a pet is something that you know, obviously you it's like your dog that you love that dog, it you take care of it, you groom it versus cattle, which serves a purpose, and it is to ultimately go to the slaughter and stuff. So um in the server analogy, having a bare metal machine is going to be like a pet. You have to take care of that thing. You have to do maintenance on it. You have to Feed it what it needs, essentially. Uh, And then a cattle uh, virtual machine or a cattle infrastructure would be more like something like AWS Beanstalk, where at any given point in time, you can destroy the virtual machine that it's running and then it'll automatically reprovision another one. The old one is out, you have a new one. It doesn't matter what happens to that machine because nothing important is stored on it. All your logs are shipped off. You have all of your uh, uploaded files up to S3. That virtual machine does no purpose other than to serve traffic. So that would be more of a cattle situation. And MERS basically is a hybrid of both because you have this bare metal server or virtual machine that is your pet. But then the application deployed to it is more like the cattle, because you can destroy that Docker container in its entirety, and your application will still work fine. You just redeploy or provision a new one, and then your application's up and running there. So, in that sense, it's kind of like a hybrid pet cattle or cattle pet, and you don't. I see. Yeah, you don't have to worry about the virtual machine or bare metals with a platform as a service. So with Heroku, you don't have to worry about the machines that they are running underneath to have that Docker container up and running for you. All you have to worry about is that running Docker container. I think the basic idea is it really depends on your needs, what you're willing to take on. Like if you don't mind doing the networking, if you don't mind having some pets around that you have to maintain, the bare metals or underlying virtual machines that Merce is going to use, then that's going to be a pretty good route because you can deploy that anywhere. And I think there's something else that is important. And companies like Render and Fly are good about writing migration documents. They do have uh, documentation on if you want to move off of Heroku onto our environment, here's how you do it. But then how do you move off of that environment and go do something like Heroku or your own servers? And I think that's where my biggest issue with a lot of these platforms as a services is that it's not easy to migrate. You are getting yourself into a vendor lock-in here. Not completely because you can always just take your environment and migrate it somewhere else. But you're not going to be able to do it as easily as you would with Mers. Because MERS doesn't care. you just It just handles the application deployment. So there is no vendor lock-in. It just needs SSH access into that machine
0: or the virtual machine. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, I'm starting to come around to it a little. <laughs> uh, I guess it's hard to get around the multi-container aspect of it. Right, like when you have multiple service, like you have your MySQL, your Redis and things like that, that Maersk is managing. Um,
1: I I would like to say something about that. Sure.
0: Yeah, go for (laughs) it.
1: (laughs) That is so dangerous. I was (laughs) playing around with DigitalOcean on this because I thought, what if I just did the entire deployment like this? You know, uh, Maersk has something called Accessories which accessories are a way that you are able to then have another virtual machine up and running that you can then deploy Postgres, MySQL, Redis to. But if you're using DigitalOcean, and much like many other cloud providers that give you access to a virtual machine, there is no hardening done. If you use MERS to deploy MySQL or Postgres SQL, It will not harden that server. What that means is that the entire world can access your database. The only thing protecting you is that password and username that you have for that database. It's very dangerous. But at the same time, if you are running your own bare metal servers, you already have a firewall in place, which means that the world cannot access your database server. And in that particular case, then running the Postgres as an accessory is wonderful and stuff because you're not exposing anything. But if you're deploying this to a cloud environment, please use the managed databases and managed services that that particular cloud offers Assuring that you're not getting yourself into a vendor lock-in situation, they're going to take much better ser- server hardening practices than what Mursk is able to do. Because again, Mursk only deploys the application, or in this case, the accessories as well. So, just something to take note of.
0: Yeah, I mean that brings me to another point or question: <laughs> uh, how how easy is it now to deploy with Mursk to some of these? Uh, you know, service providers. Is that a straightforward process? Like, because they do offer, you know, their own database. Like, if you want to use, like, you know, Heroku's Hobby Plan still, uh, I imagine that th- you probably wouldn't use Maersk anyway. But if you had, like, DigitalOcean or something and you're using their database uh, servers, is that an easy configuration option? Is it still just Rails? Uh, You know, ha- how does... How easy is it to to continue to use these other services? It's very easy
1: because in your Rails application, in your secrets or wherever you're putting it, you're just going to have that database URL and that connects to the appropriate database server. There's nothing else to do there. I mean, it's really that simple. And setting up the infrastructure, if you were to deploy to Heroku, or I'm sorry, if you were to deploy to DigitalOcean. Now, I I like DigitalOcean a lot, simply because it's simple. There's not a lot of guesswork for your databases. And this is in comparison to what I know. So uh, AWS. With AWS, if you want to lock down your database server so only your certain virtual machines can access it, It's a pain. There is no clear-cut way to do that. It's possible. I mean, you have to do that if you're deploying a database, a cloud-managed database. But it's not as as simple and straightforward as DigitalOcean. Because DigitalOcean says your database is wide open to the world. Here, click this. Add some of your virtual machines so that only they can access it. Or, and then it also gives you an option for your own public IP address. It's that simple to lock it down. And so from that perspective, I would recommend DigitalOcean because they make it that simple. I think that if it were uh, AWS or someone else were that simple, you know, then they're a good contender as well. But you have to know a lot more of the AWS lingo. You have to know a lot more about there are security groups, IAM profiles, and all that stuff in order to have it properly
0: locked down. Yeah, that's that's one concern I have <laughs> with with this whole idea. Right, is it's trying to say, okay, you don't need the cloud. You know, you can just use this tool and help you get set up, but there is still that <laughs> you need to lock it down aspect of it, right? Like, yeah. Even if you have your own bare metal server, like say you have a rack in your basement, you can't just like use MERSC and then be like, yeah, all right, I'm good to go. Like, let's <laughs> let's plug this into the you know public internet. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's got that similar Docker vibe to it, right? Where like people switch to Docker thinking, okay, like it's all self-contained. Uh, I don't have to worry about security because you know, all of the services, you know, only talk to each other and they're not exposed directly. But that's not exactly true. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, uh, so, I mean, what where, what do you see, like, is there any feedback you've seen from the Rails community in, like, having the same concern? Or is it kind of just like, well, you should know what you're doing? I would like to see on the
1: MERS read me. Like, big disclaimers of what it is meant to do and what it is not meant to do. I think it needs that disclaimer because otherwise, it can be very dangerous. And then who's responsible for that? I mean, ultimately, the person deploying is going to be the person responsible. But I mean, just at a glance of the documentation, you really don't see that. It's just how to use it. And I think that having some disclosure is important to say that we are only handling application deployment. We are not doing server hardening, networking, anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, and maybe there's another tool coming. (laughs) Right. Uh, Which I'm hopeful for. But I mean, if the whole point is to solve making deployments, Rails deployments easier, um, it seems like we're not quite there yet.
1: (laughs) But aren't we, though? Because, you know, you just said Rails deployments. That's the application deployment. Maersk is handling that. It's not handling the server hardening and provisioning and that stuff, but...
0: Yeah, I mean I to me I would include that. <laughs> yeah. Right, no like if I'm if I'm doker. renting a server from somebody, like let's say I have a Linode or a droplet or whatever, and I just create it like okay, like if I'm deploying to it, like Capistrano, even all the the base re- recipes, they lock it down, right? Like there's plenty of plugins and stuff for Capistrano where I could have all of the stuff hardened and everything. And Rails deployment set out of the box. Uh, I was kind of hoping that this was going to get there. <laughs> but I, and I, maybe they made the announcement a little prematurely. Uh, but it seems like there's still like that missing turnkey step, right? Like, yeah, it, there's so many, because there's so many other platforms and things that you can use in, in other languages and frameworks that have this built in, you know, um, that I feel like Reels should be there, you know?
1: Yeah. And I I do understand that perspective. And I think the biggest thing there is that because we are deploying basically to any kind of virtual machine, bare metal machine, can be running any operating system, there's, that's going to take a lot of assumptions into account and that could be da- just as dangerous as well where you basically brick that machine and have to completely wipe it again. And so it- it's a give and take there I think.
0: But, yeah, I mean it makes sense why they decided not to do it. <laughs> uh because it, you're right, it is such a uh wide net to cast uh to try and get everything to work, but I you know, it's it's definitely the missing this <laughs> it's introducing a piece that solves a lot of things with a missing piece. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I feel like that there's so many other tools out there that already have all these pieces fit. They may be a little more complicated or upfront, right? But they'll get you there. Uh, and they're open source and they have communities. And so I, I'm hopeful for this to gain more traction and uh, expand. But... Uh, It's still kind of a hard sell for me.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think that if you were deploying this to a bare metal again, you already have a firewall in place. So let's say if you do have a rack in your basement, you're experimenting out, you install Proxmox on a few machines to play around with. And that's just a bare metal hypervisor for those who don't know. So you create a few virtual machines that you want to deploy MERSC with, with the accessories and, you know, so you have your PostgreSQL and your Redis as an accessory. So you create those virtual machines for it to then use and provision. Then MERS is going to be great out of the box as is. Because let's say you have a separate VLAN for this network. So none of your home traffic can interact with that other traffic. So you have to either SSH into a machine or something uh, or you know connect to a VPN into your own local network on the server side. But you would then naturally have a firewall in place in front of all this. And then you would have some load balancer, HAProxy, Nginx Proxy or something that would then load balance the traffic be your ssl termination point and then you know uh you're not exposing anything you don't really need that firewall hardening it's still always good practice to harden it but by default if you're only really allowing a vpn connection and if you're only allowing port 80 and 443 traffic in then you're not really exposing anything by default and the need for hardening is much l- less important, but still equally important. If you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, I guess what I was getting at is, I, I was hoping for something more like, you know, uh, something more packaged, where I could just, you know, install this on a bare machine and it would work. <laughs> you know, some some kind of f- package where it uh you know you just execute it and it has all the context it needs to build itself up yeah which is like kind of seems like it's not really meant to do <laughs> yeah um it's not that it's not useful <laughs> like it, like all the reasons you mentioned it definitely is very useful for deploying applications uh but yeah if if i just have a computer sitting around you know I, there's a lot of steps and things I need to know in advance. Um, that if I don't do, <laughs> yeah, and I just run this on, right? Like I'm at risk. And if I'm not familiar with it, I wouldn't know it. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which this doesn't seem like a tool targeted at, at maybe, uh, you know, beginner Rails people. Um, but if, if the goal was active deployment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe, yeah. maybe it's better it's called something that's hard to pronounce. <laughs> uh, yeah. So where do you see the future of this going? Because, I mean, there, it's incredible how many features it already has out of the box. And we we haven't even touched on like the cron job scheduling and, uh, you know, the callbacks for deployments and things like that. Uh, what? Where do you see like this expanding? Two Or do you see it kind of just like tapering off and rounding out into a, a solid version of what it is? I'm 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 not sure. Uh,
1: I think the way it stands today, it has a lot of potential. And especially if they could at least get some documentation out there on how to manage your server beyond Mers, I think would be really great because then we're taking a lot of that guesswork out of it. And we are now more working towards getting this um, to be a full DevOps suite utility, where it's going to manage the server, it's going to handle database backups, because that's something that we didn't talk about either, is what disaster recovery do we have? If you were not using a managed database, taking periodic snapshots, You're screwed if something happens. So having um, those accessories to be a bit more hardened for uh, a disaster recovery scenario, I think would be good. Or snapshots that are taken of the database before a MERS deployment's done, that kind of thing. Because the rollbacks that you mentioned earlier is only for the application code. It's not rolling back databases. It's just putting the old code back up there. So if you've dropped a table in a particular uh, release and then you need to roll back, well, that table's gone. Your application's still not going to work right. So we need to be mindful on those kind of things. And for the future, I would like to see when using accessories that uh, some care is taken around database servers and backing up and snapshots or replications and that kind of stuff. Because I think, especially if you're deploying to bare metal and not using a managed database, that kind of stuff is very difficult and takes a special skill set on its own to do beyond the networking, beyond the security hardening and that stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, time will tell. You know, I'm 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 hope, hoping that it, you know, rolls into something a little more solid, like you said, with, with the documentation on how, you know, progressive en- enhancements to your application and management work. Because uh, it definitely is a huge piece missing. Because uh, I would love to get started, but I worry that I would get there and <laughs> then be like, how do I upgrade this thing?
1: <laughs> hmm And right now, it is going through a lot of changes. So... You know, things are changing quite rapidly with it. It's a new package, a new library. So now I wouldn't expect anything less. So just be cautious of that as well, because if you are an early adopter, the whole world of MERS could change overnight, you know, and you'll have to figure out a new way of doing it and stuff. So uh, I think that's something else that has been in recent discussions, but not, maybe not fully implemented or at least not released yet is the ability to specify environments that you're deploying to. So having a staging environment and stuff, it's kind of all taken into context. I want to deploy the application code to production right now. But I think they are working on that support right now.
0: Well, Dave, is there any, anything else you wanted to touch on or should we move into PICs?
1: Let's move into picks. I think we've merged out
0: <laughs> all that we can. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, what do you got? Uh,
1: Picks. I don't know, man. Uh, I've not done much this week. I've just been working on my AI stuff and that stuff's crazy. Uh, It's so much fun and I was able to finally successfully get a PyTorch ASR model uh, trained, but then also transcribing from it. So... I've it one of my Drift and Ruby videos and I would say it probably had like a 95% accuracy, like grammar wow. including. So uh, I've it a lot of my manually transcribed videos just so it could learn my voice a bit. And I'm just super excited about that. So I guess my pick, because I did use OpenAI's base model Whisper, that is a open source thing that they have where if you go to the website, and this is my pick, huggingface.co. It is a big, big AI community of pre-trained models and data sets that you're able to use and consume with whatever AI that you're doing. So whether you're doing natural language processing, speech recognition, uh, or anything else, it's going to be able to have some sort of model or something there that you can kind of get inspiration from.
0: Yeah, I I also recommend Hugging Face. Uh that's where I originally had started looking into all these large language models. Uh I think a lot of people have um but yeah, they have some great tools uh and open source stuff. Um Yeah, I'm I'm in a similar boat, you know, like this AI stuff is just so much fun. Uh but my pick is actually a, a, Also, (laughs) large language model related. uh, I saw, you know, the Llama. (laughs) The Llama came out. Uh, If you're not familiar, uh, Llama is kind of like open source GPT-3. And uh, basically, you can get up and running on your own hardware uh, and get similar kind of results out of it. Uh, And Stanford, Release their own kind of version of it, which got got it working on even more kinds of hardware uh, called Alpaca, <laughs> kind of like the subsequent Llama. Um, and I, I plan to try that out. Uh, I have some plans for over the weekend to uh, get that running on a, a, a Raspberry Pi that I have and see if I can get it to you know perform some calculations. From what I've seen, it's pretty slow. It'll take a while on that particular hardware, but. <laughs> I don't. I don't quite have the GPUs you have, Dave. Uh, but, Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's pretty wild. You can, you can use these things on your own hardware. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I have a feeling I'll just get it and be like, it won't be useful because it'll take ten minutes to run a question. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, I, I do like it for the training. Like you can use PyTorch, you know, from and many of the Hugging Face libraries and. I'm hoping to like snap snap them in and you know use some of the other models you know that aren't just like more blanket uh, for certain things. So here's what you should do, Valentino. Here's a it.
1: free multi-million dollar idea, uh, a project for you that will use Llama to generate prompts for Dolly. You can call it the Dolly Llama. <laughs> Dolly Llama. Oh my
0: gosh, that's great. <laughs>
1: If, if you're listening, and,
0: taken. Yeah. I mean, hey, if you're working on it, shout out to us. Let us know because I, I would love to uh, use it or just explore, uh, promote you, <laughs> promote the Dalai <laughs> Lama, you know. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's it for me, too. Um, you know, I, it was great talking about this stuff. It's exciting to see. Uh, you know rails tackling the deployment challenge you know that's been you know bogging it down for so long with external tools that have kind of worked uh hobbling mm-hmm. along and it's good to see some you know definitive progress being pointed at it right uh it being identifying it as being a problem and something that can be solved and consolidated right uh, I think that's the ultimate goal of of the framework is that conceptual compression and making things easier to do out of the box, right? So, well, I'm excited to see where it goes. Yep, me too, man. All right, well, until uh, next time, everyone, Uh, Valentino out.